I can make faces at you to try to make you laugh <laughs> since we have video. Well, you just did. Principal Matters Podcast, episode 109. Hi, Principal Matters listeners. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I want to talk about the power of one caring adult with my special guest, Josh Ship. Josh is the best-selling author, global youth empowerment expert, and acclaimed speaker. He is a former at-risk foster kid turned youth advocate, and he is known for his documentary TV series, Teen Trouble on Annie, that followed his groundbreaking work with teens. He has spoken at universities such as Harvard, Stanford, MIT, in UCLA, as well as K-12 schools across the U.S. He's a recognized teen expert for media outlets such as MTV, CNN, Fox, the New York Times, ABC's 2020, and Good Morning America. Josh has worked with groups of parents and educators and mental health professionals, plus he has spoken to more than 2 million teens and parents live. Josh Ship, welcome to Principal Matters. Principal Matters 109. That's the big thing I got to add to my bio now. <laughs> well, you're episode 109, and I'm so excited to have you on this program about Oh, two months ago, we sat together in Oklahoma at an Oklahoma Middle Level Educators Association conference, and we talked for a few minutes before you stepped on stage about the work that you're doing, and then when you stepped up to the plate to talk to a room full of middle-level educators, you hit it home in terms of the message that you had for why educators must never give up on reaching students. And so I am so excited to have you share your story with Principal Matters listeners today. So let's begin there. Share your story with us, Josh, and why you have dedicated your life to teaching others to reach today's youth. Yeah, so I actually grew up in Oklahoma, in in Oklahoma City in 1981 is sort of where my story begins. My, My biological mother was 17 when she got pregnant with me and then gave birth to me. And Sort of several hours after giving birth to me, she slipped out the side door of a hospital and took off. And, you know, obviously as, a, as an infant, you don't remember those moments, but what that did sort of mark into my life was this idea that I could never, ever trust another adult. You know, and this is a common pattern you'll see with young people and with kids is that, you know, often they've had sort of an early adult break their trust. And sometimes unintentionally, sometimes for understandable reasons, they were going through something difficult, or sometimes just a a poor choice that maybe even that adult looks back on and regrets. But but for whatever reason, uh, you know, this is a pattern that we'll see with kids is that some initial adult broke their trust. And so they assume every adult that follows them, including you as their leader, as their educator or coach or whatever role you play in their life, that you're going to do the same. And And that was probably from the time I was five years old, that was my MO. I was angry. I was defiant. I was rebellious. I pushed adults away. And that was my sort of defense mechanism. That was the way I protected myself. That was the way I ensured that I would never sort of get close to an adult. And then they would, I assume, sort of slip out the side door of a hospital, that they would sort of walk away from me, step away from me. So, you know, from age five on, and I only got better at it, the older I got, you know, I was every parent and teacher's worst nightmare. 
You know, I was that kid that no teacher would, would want to have in their class. I was that, I was that kid that if, you know, you were the principal that you were just having to deal with at least once a week, you know, the, the headache, the drama, the, the nonsense, the, the wear and tear on your staff. I was just that kid. So from ages five to 14, I'm ripping through foster homes at a pretty rapid pace. And these are, these are good people. These are caring folks. These are folks who had the best intentions. You know, I'm getting suspended from schools left and right. Again, good schools, you know, random parts of Oklahoma City area. And then at 14, I'm kind of shoved into another foster home, and I assume, you know, that'll be it. And, you know, by this point, I'd gone through so much, you know, sort of kicked out of all these homes. As a young person, I became suicidal. As a young person, I was sort of abused in a variety of different ways. So, so I, I had a lot that I was carrying as a young person. So I move in with these next set of foster parents, Rodney and Christine from Yukon. Rodney was actually an educator in the Yukon School District for several decades, a coach, a driver's ed teacher, eventually became an assistant principal and principal. And I just assumed that, you know, these folks would be the next ones that I would sort of leave in my wake you know, my rebellion and my acting out and my hard-headed and stubborn behavior. And so I, you know, I, I was doing my thing to try to push them away, try to get them to give up on me, to get them to wash their hands of me. And nothing was working. And this was very unusual to me because I had it, I had it pretty much down to a science of sort of the, the sequence of events I needed to unfurl. And, and they just kept not budging, you know, and they were both sort of tough and tender throughout it all. They were firm and fair throughout it all. This was very unusual to me. So eventually I write a bunch of hot checks and eventually I get picked up by an Oklahoma Highway State Trooper for one of these checks because I, I was speeding and then I didn't have insurance and because I didn't have insurance, I didn't have a driver's license. Long story short, I end up in Stillwater in the jail in town there. I call my foster dad to come pick me up. He does. He sits me down and kind of gives me this, uh, what I assume is just going to be like, hey, the we're kicking you out of here talk. And he said several things, but one of the things in which he said, he said, you know, son, you got to get it through your thick head. We don't see you as a problem. We see you as an opportunity. Now, in the moment, I didn't think much of it, but it did kind of stop me dead in my tracks. And it was a sentence that haunted me in a good way. It was a sentence I couldn't get out of my head. And though I didn't immediately, and I think this is important, I didn't immediately let him know the impact of those words. It really rocked me in the moment. It really began to shift my mindset in the moment. And not just because it was words. You know, anyone can sort of grab a successory poster and read it out loud to a kid or something. It's that this is who Rodney had proven himself to be, was was someone who didn't see me as a problem or, or saw, saw past the problems, right? He wasn't stupid. He wasn't ignoring my behavior or enabling it or approving of it or any of those things we, we would never want to do to a kid. I think what he did, though, really is saw past it. He saw underneath it. He saw why it was happening. And while many people could get to like, hey, this is unacceptable, and that's a fair point, he went a step further, sort of like, this is unacceptable, and this isn't you. Like, there is more to you than this that, that you're sort of acting out. And the work of Rodney and the countless Rodneys I've had in my life, various teachers and coaches, 
this is the genesis of my my entire life's work, which is around this idea that every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. And that's not just something I say because it would make a good tweet. It's something I say because I was that kid. That was my story. And since then, I've seen it play out in tens of thousands of kids' lives. A, a kid who's really struggling or moderately struggling, mm -hmm. having that Rodney, having that one caring adult who is tough and tender, who draws the line but points to another line, who doesn't excuse their behavior but sees past it and, and sees the real them. As cheesy as it might sound, I've just seen it so much now that it's why I've dedicated myself to doing this work and to spreading this message. Well, Josh, I've heard your story before and it's powerful every time I listen. And I wanted to share a story with you about yeah. the power of One Caring Adult and how you've influenced the work that I've done in my practice as a school principal. A couple of years ago, I had a high school student whom our community was serving. We discovered that his biological father had abandoned him hmm. and had left the state and he was living with a family within the community who had taken him in temporarily so he could have a place to stay. And as I sat across from him and I had reached out to the Department of Human Services for input and they were puzzled on what to do next, mm -hmm. the boy began to share with me that he had an adopted mother who lived out of state whom he had broken ties with. And I don't know why I chose to do this, but I had just finished watching a video share that you had put out on one caring adult telling your story. Mm -hmm. And so I just asked him, would you watch this video clip with me for a moment? And so we sat at my desk and I pulled it up on my computer. And for 15 minutes, we watched you talk about your story, about the power of a caring adult, about Rodney's work in your life mm -hmm. and about the importance of, of youth being able to have someone in their life who believed in them. And I kind of took a risk uh, because I asked him this question, not really knowing the answer, but I said, have you ever had one caring adult in your life whom you could depend on? Hmm. And he said, yes, uh, my adopted mom out of state. I know she loves me, but I was unwilling to live by her rules. And I left and found my biological dad again, but I don't know if she'd take me back. And so in a series of phone calls and contacts with that adopted mom out of state, uh, he ended up being flown back home uh, to live with her and to start life fresh and new again. And I don't know if, if the end of his story is a successful one, but I know in that moment, just being able to have the conversation with him where he saw your story mm -hmm. and then was able to connect that to someone in his life who believed in him was motivation for him to take that next best step. So thank you for the countless ways that you have spoken into the lives of young people live and in video and in your books and through your documentaries and times where you don't even know that school leaders are pulling out your content and sharing it with young people or That's with their teachers man. because uh, you're making a great difference uh, in this world. So let's stay there for just a moment because I know you've had lots of experience, not just with kids, but with their parents and with educators, helping them think about strategies for tough conversations. Mm -hmm. And so let's go there for just a moment because I know you've got some practical takeaways that you share with educators on when you're in the middle of a tough conversation with a, with a student or a, or a child, what are some strategies you would suggest to try to make that as positive as it can be? 
Yeah, I mean, having these crucial and difficult and often awkward conversations, you know, these are the, really the moments that matter. These are the moments why we, you know, jump through the hoops we do to try to build trust with a kid, to try to gain, you know, a shred of influence with a kid is for is for those moments like you had sitting in front of a laptop with that kid, you know, like Rodney had with me in the living room in Yukon after he had yanked me out of jail in Stillwater. You know, these moments, these windows of opportunity, they come, they come often when they're not convenient, when we've got uh, a ton of other things to do, when we don't have talking points in front of us, we haven't quite rehearsed our Oscar speech. These moments show up and and they really, really matter. So this is something I, I enjoy nerding out about all sorts of things, but this is one of the things I really enjoy nerding out about is is how do we get kids to open up and talk to us about the things that are really difficult? Because the things that are really difficult, you know, if a kid is considering self-harm or if a kid, you know, is really doubting themselves or a kid, you know, had something go on at school and that's kind of the reason he's acting out. These are really icky things that like if I was going through them as an adult would be really awkward to talk about, really scary to talk about. And then rewind to being like 15 or 10 you know, how much more do you not want to talk about them? How much more do you feel the need to kind of put up a mask and pretend like everything's fine and everything's good and I don't need to talk about it? So I've really enjoyed nerding out about this. And the good strategies that I have have come from hundreds of others failing. So uh, you're welcome, everyone, that you get to benefit from from my screw-ups. But a couple super practical things is, number one, be, be vulnerable. You know, vulnerability leads to vulnerability. It's a psychological term known as appropriate self-disclosure, that when you sort of appropriately self-disclose something to someone, they feel a need to sort of give you a response that is similarly vulnerable. It would be like if if we were standing in the same room right now and I just like tossed a basketball at you, you would feel the need to kind of grab it. You would feel the need to sort of catch it. It would just be sort of an impulse and an instinct to you, even if you didn't do it on purpose. And vulnerability used appropriately can can really open up a kid, you know, and I think as leaders, as adults, it's our job to go first. It's our job to risk first. It's our job to show them that you can both be a person who's going through something difficult or has gone through something difficult and be like a decent functioning, you know, mostly healthy human being. Because I think the the permeating lie in a kid's head is, it's just me. You know, Will, there are, I think, over half a million foster kids in the U.S. Growing up, I literally thought I was the only one on the planet. You know, I thought I was the only kid that is, was going through some of the difficult things that I was going through, some of the challenges I was going through. You know, if you want them to talk about something that's difficult, that's awkward, that's uh, challenging, that's scary, Go first and talk about something that's difficult or awkward or challenging or scary for you. Now, sometimes people ask me, well, you know, what's the difference between what's appropriate to share and not? To me, I think of it like this, heal the wound and reveal the scar. Meaning as long as it's something you've dealt with yourself and because you've dealt with it yourself, like, you know, you have a healthy perspective, you have some, uh, you just have a healthy perspective on it. You know, it's not therapy. You're not whining or complaining or venting sort of on a kid. It's something you've processed. Then to me, it's appropriate. You know, there, there are things going on in my own life right now that are really difficult. I have no perspective on them, none yet. 
I'm just angry or confused or bitter about them. And so to talk about those, you know, with a counselor, great. With, with a trusted friend, great. With a kid I'm working with, a little bit premature. But we all have these things in our life. So thing number one, be vulnerable. That will Vulnerability leads to vulnerability. That'll open them up. Um, secondly, these next two things are about giving the kid a sense of control in a situation that feels out of their control. You know, if you got to talk to them about something difficult, quickly acknowledge the elephant in the room, meaning like sentence one, just name what we're going to talk about. Name the difficult topic. You know, you and I need to have a, I need to ask you some difficult questions about what's going on at home with your parents. I need to ask you some awkward questions about what happened at this situation at school. Just acknowledge the elephant. Just get it out there as quickly as possible. And then the other thing with that is give them a mile marker, meaning tell them how long that this sort of awkward or tense or difficult conversation is going to last. So there's a kid I work with, Isaiah, and um, he lives with his grandma. And his grandma asked me to like have the sex talk with him because she hadn't had it with him yet. And, And these were tactics that I used. You know, we went for a car ride. You know, research shows if you got to have a difficult conversation with a young man, it's better to have it not being face-to-face, but rather side-to-side because they view face-to-face as sort of confrontational. So I just I just came right out with that. I was like, Isaiah, dude, we're about to have a really awkward conversation. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about the topic of sex. You can expect this conversation to last no more than six minutes. And A, that puts you as a communicator at ease because you've kind of gotten the thing that you're most fearful of out of the way. And B, it gives that kid a little bit of a sense of control in something that otherwise feels kind of scary and out of control. That's fantastic. Josh, I'm the parent of four Mm. and I have uh, one college age child and three that are still at home, two high schoolers and one middle schooler. So not only has my life's work been with youth and teenagers, but now I have a family full of them. And I've heard you share those takeaways before, and I practiced them. Just recently, mm. I had a conversation with one of my children that I knew was going to be difficult. And I, before I stepped into it, I, I thought back through some of the tips I had heard you share before, and I, and, and I practiced both of those. I mm. said, I named the topic. I set a time limit for how long it was going to last. And it was amazing how much more productive that conversation was because Uh, My child knew going in, this is what we're talking about. And this is how long I have to endure this. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and it was, uh, you know, I worked with youth for a long, long time, but those, those practical takeaways, they work. And I know that they don't work in every kind of situation because you can't always read what's going on in the hearts or minds of of kids. And it doesn't mean the conversation will go perfect. No. But it'll likely go better. Exactly. Do you want to add anything else to that? Because there's some other questions that I want to ask you about the work that you do, but was there anything else that you wanted to add to those tough conversations with the kids? They're just so difficult to have, but they're so important to have. You know, when I think about, you know, kids I'm working with right now, it's, uh, you know, there are conversations that need to be had. It's really easy to put them off. It's easy to want someone else to have them, but it's really important to lean in and have those conversations. And And man, I find if you do these respectfully and well with a sense of regard for the kid, even if the conversation is like, I have to lay down a consequence on you, you will actually gain the trust of that kid as long as it's done in a non-emotional way 
in a way that feels respectful to that kid. Even though you feel like you're making a withdrawal, you know, from that relationship, if you do it well and you do it with intentionality, you're actually making a deposit. Mm, That's so powerful. Well, Josh Shipp, you have given your life's work to working in the lives of youth and and speaking across America. And I know you've been a youth speaker and inspirational speaker, motivational speaker. You're an author. But most recently, I've been looking at some of the work that you do in terms of the teams of speakers that you're influencing. And Principal Matters listeners, a lot of them are educational leaders. And I didn't want to walk away from this conversation without asking you some a question specific about your work in building up leaders because you've begun an organization called uh, Youth Speaker University where you on where you mentor other speakers who travel around the country and talk about one caring adults not just here but around the world and so I was just curious while I had an opportunity I know you've run a successful organization training and equipping speakers what are some of the lessons that you're learning about building teams or training others that you think would be helpful for other leaders? I love this question. This is so in my wheelhouse of nerdery. So three things that I'll say. Number one, I'm trying to identify ways to simulate inevitable challenges during a hiring process or while or before I'm trying to work with someone. So for example, if I'm looking for someone and I need them to be very, very detail-oriented, you know, I'm not just going to ask them, are they, are they detail-oriented? But I'm going to intentionally, myself or my team, you know, maybe in an email communication, send some stuff where there's incongruencies, where links are broken, where uh, things are not dialed in with the details, and see how they handle that, see how they respond to that. You know, if I'm looking for, you know, let's say a speaker, you know, to me, an, an excellent speaker, there's two aspects to it. There's the on the stage and there's the off the stage. The on the stage is pretty predictable. You need a unique message. It needs to be delivered in a compelling way. And it needs to be genuinely helpful and inspiring. Got it. Okay. But there's also this off the stage component, which requires, you know, humility, which requires being flexible and reasonable and level-headed. So I go, all right, if I'm looking to be working with speakers that are flexible, I need to see how they handle environments that where things start to get chaotic. And so, you know, I'll be setting up conversations like this one we're doing on Zoom right now. I'll cancel last minute. We'll send the wrong information. You know, just trying to think of creative ways to simulate that environment in advance. Because what I've seen as a leader of leaders is this. You meet someone, I'm about to make a sort of a mountaineering analogy, but you meet someone at base camp and you go, man, that person seems talented or that person seems capable. That person seems they could fill a role in our organization. But what you don't know at base camp is how would they do on the ascent? How would they do once they start climbing, once they get fatigued, once they get dehydrated, once the altitude becomes a little bit thinner? Because with more responsibility or more influence or more success or more nuanced challenges, the air gets thinner. And so, and some people can handle the altitude and some people can't. And so I want to try to simulate sort of that thin air, that, that uh, high altitude training while we're at base camp. For my own good insanity 
as, as well as theirs. So that's thing number one I'll share. Thing number two is we've been using focus groups in our organization for a variety of things, and it's been so helpful. Most recently, I gave a, a, a TED Talk. And so these are the sort of like 15-minute little talks, and they're filmed, and they kind of last and, uh, and linger on for a while. So they, you want them to be good. Now, for the leaders listening, there's, there's probably sort of presentations or talks or things. You know, some of them are, you can kind of get up there and wing it, and you can kind of, you know, count on your experience or charisma or whatever. But, you know, there's certain presentations where you go, man, this one I really got to get right. This one I, I really got to nail for whatever reason. So what we do in those sorts of situations is that um, we sort of focus group. So here's what I mean. When I'm doing that TED Talk, I will film a video of it, a version of it, on my laptop, like you and I are talking right now, Will. So it's, it's not pretty, it's not high definition, it's not high production value, but literally just sort of as if I'm actually giving the 15-minute the talk. And then I will send that to 20 people along with a link to a Google survey. Now, a couple of things. Number one, the Google survey is anonymous because if people have to give you feedback with their name attached to it, they're going to be cowardly. And what you don't need is like, that was great. And it's like, no, I understand. You need to know what's, how it could be better, you know, how it could improve. So I send them a Google survey. It's anonymous. I ask them, please be brutal. Please be brutal. You have to give people permission to be brutal, especially if you're the leader. So the the three questions are this. Number one, what was most helpful to you about what I just shared? This is helpful feedback because what you might find fascinating and interesting and helpful might not be the case for other people. You know, we, it's really hard to know what's helpful and interesting or intriguing about our own sort of communication. Thing number two, what was unclear? Not was it clear or what could be more clear? Assume something's unclear. So what was unclear? And in that you'll find, well, you didn't quite explain this or, you know, you talked about this, but you didn't sort of close the loop on it. And then uh, sort of the third thing is, what did I just ask you to do? Meaning that 10-minute talk or whatever it is that you're sharing to get some feedback on, what is it that I just asked you to do? And we have used this focus group sort of format in TED Talks, in videos we're creating, in emails we're sending out, in you know chapters of a book or a workbook. So you can use this in a variety of ways, but particularly when it's going to live for a while, so it's going to be printed or posted or uploaded, you want to get it right so that you don't look back and start getting the feedback and go, ah, we, yeah, that was a blind spot. We totally miss that. So focus groups, I'm a huge fan of. That's thing number two. Thing number three is more of sort of a mental framework, which is just the idea of 10% better. As the senior leader in my organization, what I try to spend a little bit of time doing each month is looking over the landscape of the things we're involved in and just asking the question, how could this be 10% better? Uh, and 10%, I find, is a helpful rubric for me to not like get freaked out and to not just sort of get paralyzed and shut down because it's like you know we're completely reworking something. You know, an example of 10% better could be, you know, there was this communication we were sending out to a bunch of parents, and it was just sort of a big, long block of text. And the let me be clear, that long block of text was well-written. It was funny and clear and helpful and all those things I would want it to be. 
However, you look at that and you go, man, I know as a parent myself, even if I'm earnestly involved in something like I'm busy. So we go, hey, this could be 10% better if we could sort of take that block of text, turn it into just a handful of bullet points and give some icons, so some visual images that represent these things we're asking them to do. And so does that make it twice as good? Does that make it, who knows? But to me, that one little thing makes it 10% better, which means then if we send it out to 100 people and instead of it being effective for, let's say, 30 people, it's effective for 40, that really matters. That really moves the needle. That really helps what we're doing. That's fantastic. And I I, I want to just do a quick summary for Principal yes. Matters listeners, but simulate inevitable challenges, use focus groups, and ask how can this be 10% better? And Principal Matters listeners, I know you are probably already applying this to the work that you're doing with teachers and students or your team within your schools, but those are such powerful takeaways, Josh, because when I think about how often, even in hiring for excellence in our education field, sometimes we miss out on opportunities to give people challenges before they've stepped into the work. We're often Uh evaluating them after we've hired them or after they're in the classroom instead of being able to walk through or simulate some of those challenges before they ever face them. And I love how with the focus group, those three takeaways, what was the most helpful what was unclear, and what did I just ask you to do? Because sometimes before we send communications, we need to be evaluating with our teams or in our own communications, is what I'm getting ready to do the most effective and best communication? And then growth. If we are not committed to continuous improvement and and growth, then we stay flat or we go backwards. And so uh, within our teams, we have to have that mental focus. And I like the 10% better because it's not an overwhelming ask, but it is an ask, yeah. which is how can yeah. I, how can I make this, what I'm doing right now, even better than what we, we thought it was going to be uh, when we finished this project. Well, Josh Ship, it has been such an amazing privilege to have you as a guest on Principal Matters. And I just want to ask you in parting, if you have one parting piece of advice for school leaders and how can listeners stay connected with you and the work that you're doing? Well, sort of my, my favorite phrase these days is this, that wishful thinking is not a strategy, that if there's something I want to improve upon, if there's a relationship I want to strengthen, if there's something I want to lean into and try to make a difference in, you know, wishful thinking is not a strategy. You know, I certainly need to approach it with optimism, but I also want to pair with that optimism a prudent strategy. And I think when you can combine that, when you can have the eyes to see, you know, when you can look at your school, your organization and say, you know, that is not a problem, it's an opportunity. So there's sort of the the optimism, but then you can bring a strategy alongside it because of course people want to improve. Of course people want the culture better. But if you can say, "I, I know that we can get better and here's a practical, tactical way in which we can get a little bit better each day, each week, each month, each year, I think that really makes a difference. And then the, the best, the, your second question, best place to find me online is onecaringadult.com. So one spelt out, O-N-E, onecaringadult.com. And there you find my work with parents and educators. You know, if you're an aspiring speaker, if you're looking to bring a speaker to your school, I got a, about a dozen folks that I work with who do phenomenal stuff uh, in the K through 12 level. Well, Josh Ship. I love that parting piece of advice. Wishful thinking 
is not a strategy. And I just want to thank you for the time you've taken today to encourage us in how to reach young people, how to have difficult conversations with them, how to rethink the way that we're working with our own teams. And I just want to give you a quick uh, shout out, Principal Matters listeners, if you're looking for an amazing speaker. Uh, Josh not only is amazing in front of audiences of educators, but he has a whole host of other speakers that he's trained. Reach out and connect with Josh and bring someone into your school who could influence your kids, your teachers to continue to make a difference in your communities. Josh, thank you for the work that you're doing. Principal Matters listeners, thank you for listening this week. Until next time, I just want to remind you that what you do matters. We'll talk to you soon.